Our sermon text this morning comes in two sections, verses 5 through 10 of 1 Timothy chapter 6, and then skipping down to verses 17 through 19. This is God's eternal word. It is always true. It can never be broken. Let's listen to it. Beginning in verse 6. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through craving, this craving, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, that means proud, nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up riches for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This morning we come to the 11th sermon in Timothy, and it's the last one. I started several months ago in a series that I called Lessons in Leadership for a Missional Church. And over these these last 11 sermons, we've been exploring different aspects, different angles, that a missional church, which is what we desire to be, this is the stated intention of your leaders, your elders, your deacons, your leading women, We've consented and we've agreed that we desire to be a church on the mission of Jesus in this community where God has placed us. That is our calling. And I thought it to be particularly appropriate as we're transitioning in leadership from a pastor to a new pastor, being given the task of preaching to you, that you would be given lessons on leadership. You're selecting a new leader, for, for starters. And you all, in, in your own capacity, are called to lead in this church. And so it's important that you know how your ministry of leadership in this church should look. And so lessons on leadership is useful in that regard. I also chose it because I need this. I need to be reminded what a missional pastor looks like. I need to be reminded. I need to be taught. And so I'm not going to preach something that I don't need. I'm going to feed you, as it were, with the very food that I myself am craving and needing. And I've found as a pastor that if it's something I need, it's probably something that others need too. I hope it's been helpful to you. It certainly has helped me to clarify some things in my mind in terms of a basic principle of hermeneutics that that is how we get the meaning of Scripture out of Scripture. That basic principle of hermeneutics is this. Every chapter in Scripture speaks of Jesus Christ. And that has proven to be true 
in what has been seen traditionally as a book of lists and in a sense a, a detached book of sort of principles on leadership, it actually is a book that speaks very directly to the gospel. In every chapter of this book, we find that Paul is either assuming or explicitly stating that the whole point of our gathering is that Jesus died and now Jesus is alive. However, Paul ends this letter in a, in a slightly inconvenient place by speaking about money. No pastor willingly speaks about money, and any pastor that manages the courage to speak about money does so with fear and trepidation because it is our number one idol. All of us have it in our back pocket, in fact, or in the purse. It is the almighty dollar appropriately named. I heard one pastor describe this section of Paul's letter as a Bible study outline for Timothy to use for the rich people in his congregation, a rich man's Bible study. But it's more than a Bible study for the already rich. If you noticed, I read a section of Scripture that talked about those who desire to be rich. So not only is Timothy leading a Bible study for the already have made it, but he's leading a Bible study for those who are trying to get there. I figure that pretty much includes everyone listening to me this morning. So I've called the sermon not how rich people use their money, but how missionaries use their money. And hearing this, Steve said, well, I can tell you how missionaries use their money. They don't, because they don't have any. But of course, one of my points throughout this series has been what? We are missionaries, with a little m, on the mission of Jesus in our particular sphere, in our particular place of influence, in our particular workplace, in our particular play place, in our neighborhood, in our homes, with our families, with our children, with our parents. We are missionaries at school, at home, and at work. And so I have intentionally played on that idea that missionaries have trouble using money. I did read in preparation for this sermon a, a, an article, and I may have mentioned it already, but a Nigerian pastor who spent $4 billion, Nigerian dollars, on a jet. And so he had, he had worked that into his mission's budget. That was part of his budget. I, I laughed at that, and I thought, wow, I didn't realize pastors could do that, but, but he did that. But uh, I don't think that that's what we have in mind when we talk about using money. I had an interesting question asked of me by one of my children recently, and it was uncomfortable, and children are good at that. And the question was this, Papa, are we rich? And I thought, hmm. And then the next question was, Papa, is so-and-so rich? I thought, wow, that's a great question. Great question. And of course, by some standards, my family is not rich. There are several movies that I wanted to see this month, and I haven't, partly because of time, and partly because the tickets are practically $10 a piece. And so is the popcorn, by the way. So, <laughs> so you know, in, in the sense that I can't buy whatever I want, I'd love to have a new car. I drive a 2003 Honda. It's a very nice car. I'm not complaining about it, but I'd like a new one. So I'm not rich in that sense, sort of able to buy whatever I want, whenever I want. We're always looking at sale items. I've, I found it interesting that sort of the new recessionary lifestyle is in vogue, right? Clipping coupons and, you know, 
getting the two-for-one deals and so on and so forth. I've been doing that for 15 years. I, I, you know, I didn't realize that it was so cool. So I, I'm actually emboldened now. I usually ask, is that the best price you can give me almost at any transaction? Now I say, you know, it's cool these days to ask this question, so, and, the, and the clerk usually laughs at me when, when I do that. Are we rich? As Westerners, I think we forget what rich means. I listened to a sermon by John Piper about a month ago, and the sermon was called, Why We Need the Recession. Outstanding message. If you haven't heard it, I would encourage it encourage you to read it. John Piper is a master communicator and an excellent list maker. And this was like 10 points as to why we need the recession. One of the reasons he gave in his message that I thought was very compelling was this. We talk in, in, uh, in the news and in, in politics about you know, whether we were in a recession. Remember, for like a year and a half, it was like, is this a recession? Is this a recession now? Oh, is, this surely must be the recession. Economists are divided. You know, we have, yes, we're in a recession crowd, and no, we're not in a recession crowd, and now everybody says we're in a recession. But Piper's point was, while we're debating the finer points of whether we're in a recession or not, most of the world doesn't have that privilege. Most of the world, Piper said, lives in a continual unremitting, unrelenting, recessionary economy forever. They don't know anything else. And so God sends us a recession, if only for this reason, he said, to give us a taste of what most people live under all the time. By any standard, by any conceivable standard, even the poorest of the poor in this nation are wealthier than many even middle-class people in the third world. I'll never forget when I was in Africa for a month on a missions trip as part of my seminary training, seeing women carrying water. You know, the saying is that a rich man and a poor man all have the same amount of time. What is it, 144,000 seconds? Or I, I don't remember. You know what I'm talking about. We all have the same amount of time in a day. But a rich man doesn't have to spend two and a half hours walking to get water and two and a half hours walking back. So we all put on our pants one leg at a time, right? Sort of the great equalizing concept. But not all of us can afford to have someone else buy our pants for us, make our pants for us, iron our pants for us, repair our pants for us, and replace them. It was also interesting when I was in Africa to discover how many people believed in God. When I was doing evangelism, that was part of the point of the trip, was to do evangelism. I met zero atheists. Zero. Now the enlightened among us would say, well, that's just because they're in a primitive culture and they're not exposed and so forth. And I would actually say, you're right. Because the truth is I met one atheist. The one atheist I met was a student who had gone to school in London and had come back. So there's something about the empiricism, and by that I mean that philosophical worldview that says everything is what you see. If you can't taste it, if you can't touch it, if you can't measure it, if you, can't, if you can't put your hands on it, it doesn't exist. There's something about empiricism in Western civilization that encourages the belief that we can get by without God, without the belief in God, that we function just fine without the divine. 
And the problem with that is that only works in a society that is predominantly rich and wealthy and has no needs. Because the minute you remove some of those material supports that make empiricism possible, all of a sudden you find people praying. I don't have enough. I can't get what I need. Someone else has to get it for me. And so in a country like Uganda, which is, which is filled with poverty, you have a lot of people that are praying to God. And so when I asked them about God, they didn't have any questions about whether God existed. They just wanted to know what was he like? What was God like? And so, yes, are we rich, Papa? The answer, I'm afraid, has to be yes, we are rich. And because of that, and because of the function that riches have in most people's lives, which is to serve to draw their attention away from their need from God, Jesus is absolutely right when he says it is easier for a camel to squeeze through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. The letter was written to Timothy in part so that he could restore the missionary focus of the entire congregation. So riches have a, have a, have a powerful effect, don't they, on steering us away from our mission as Christians. They have a, they have, they're a powerful magnet that draws us from faith in God from faith in an invisible God to the things that we can put our hands on, the things that we worked for, the things that we can see, the things that help us. That's what riches do. So seen in this way, as I meditated on this, it seemed to me that this was a very appropriate way to end a letter which was essentially written to a church that had lost its mission. Riches. Riches. What greater hurdle exists today? What greater barrier exists today to our fully engaging the mission of Jesus than our possessions? I don't know of one. And what harder task could Jesus give leaders in the church than the challenge, first of leading by example, and then by teaching those that they have been called to lead to not trust in their money in their jobs, in their possessions, in their retirement accounts, to not put their hope in those things. What harder job could he have given us than that? I think it's a very important lesson. So talking about money in the final sermon, it really puts the rubber to the road about being a missional church. Because money is a metaphor, if you will, for mammon. Jesus calls it mammon. And mammon doesn't mean money, although some passages, some versions of the Bible translate it that way. Mammon literally means worldly goods, everything, all your stuff. I will not ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you have a storage unit? Right? The proverbial bigger barn of 21st century civilization. Mammon. We had a storage unit for a while, and it was amazing. When we had that stuff in the storage unit, how we forgot about it. We never needed it. We never went to get it out of storage like we said we would. In fact, most of it, we've forgotten what it is because it's in boxes. I'm not counting my books. <laughs> Here's my main point today. God desires you to be satisfied with him 
in whatever he chooses or chooses not to give you in terms of material possessions. That's God's desire. And that's the point I want you to remember from this morning's sermon. And, and here's the thing. The only way you can be satisfied in God is if you've seen and believed the gospel. Only the gospel has enough power to pry our hearts away from, to pry our hands away from our stuff. Nothing else is strong enough. It may do it temporarily. Shame might do it temporarily. Pride might do it temporarily. But the only thing that can do it once and for all is the power of the cross. The cross saying that Jesus died to save you from your stuff and your addiction, your, the, the grip that it has on you. God isn't just concerned about our money. He's concerned about you. And if you settle that, if you settle the you, then God will take care of the rest. Isn't that what Jesus said? He said, don't worry about you know, what you will eat or what you will drink or what you will wear. Take a look at the blooming desert. The cactuses are shooting out their flowers. The mesquite are dropping their pollen. Okay, the Palo Verde are all yellow. And if he can do that, he can help you. And then he speaks to my tribe. Little faith. O you of the tribe of little faith. O you of little faith. The little faith people, and I count myself as one of those people, the little faith people need to be reminded that God cares for us. He's taking care of us, and we need not worry about our money. Well, that could be the whole sermon, and and in the sense it is, I'm going to point out some specific things from the text and give several applications as we conclude. Let's look specifically, first of all, about the danger of neglecting. I'm just going to point these out briefly. Neglecting using money the way God wants us to, neglecting that missionary mindset. Uh, Paul begins in his section here in verse 3, the end of verse 2 and then verse 3, he returns to the, to the way that he began the, the book, doesn't he? Talking about false teachers. And he uses this phrase, uh, imagining, in verse 5, that godliness is a means of gain. I'm going to hit a hobby horse here of mine. And this is not meant to offend anyone in particular. This is going to be good, right? That kind of a, a build-up. It's, it's my Christian fish hobby horse. I don't have one on my car for selfish reasons. Okay? Some of you know what I'm talking about. But it's when it gets put on a business card. That's what I'm talking about. I don't have a problem with that, but I might have a problem with that. So I'm sure this applies to no one here. But it applies to someone, I'm sure. And that is putting a little fish on a business card for the purpose of winning someone's interest in your work. I think a Christian's work ought to be won by the work and not by the symbol that he or she has on a business card. That's my opinion. I'm also a jaded Gen Xer, so I doubt everything. So I see the fish on the business card, and and because of where I am generationally and culturally and my own personality, I'm a scientist, I tend to think, 
you know, this person is trying to cover up for work that is poorly done. <laughs> because he's a Christian and he believes that, that I ought to forgive him for mistakes that he's going to make in the work. Now, <laughs> he's, he's probably not thinking that. But godliness is not a means of that kind of gain. I also have a problem with people who go to church so that they can make contacts for their business or for people calling their Christian friends to talk to them about a business opportunity. I don't think that's the way that we ought to work. Now, is it appropriate to give business to Christians, to people in the family of God? I think, yeah, there's, there's a case to be made for that. But let's beware of using, of thinking that godliness, supposing, as Paul says here, that godliness is a means for gain. So we can't neglect the mission for money. This is what he's saying. What happens when we do? We plunge in people into ruin and destruction. It's a temptation, it says in verse 9. A snare. Many senseless and harmful desires. It's the root of all kinds of evil. Have you heard that misquoted, by the way? How is that misquoted? Money is the root of all evils, right? Let's hear it for reading our Bibles. Paul is not against money. Look at this. Look at verse uh, 17. Set your hopes on God who richly provides us with all things, even nice things, even fancy food and fancy cars and nicely painted buildings and air conditioning and all that. God, God gives good stuff. Paul is not against that. We've, we've addressed that in uh, uh, chapter 4 when I talked about uh, faith, fellowship, and feasting. No, but the problem is, is that when you love money, that's the problem. And that word love calls to mind a certain commandment. Which might that be? It's the first commandment. You shall have just a few gods before me, but please keep it to under five. No, God is a jealous God. He's jealous, and it's, he's pretty much the only one who gets away with being jealous and not sinning. He's jealous. He wants us to love him alone. Again and again in the Bible, we're warned against having an undivided heart. Don't divide your loyalties. As I've quoted earlier, Jesus said you cannot love both God and money. You can't do it. It's impossible. Something has to be first. And the one that's first sets the paradigm for every other choice that you make. So if money's first, God gets to be second. Sometimes we use him, and sometimes we don't. When God is first, money's second. Sometimes we get to use it, and sometimes we don't. So neglecting the mission of Jesus is selfish, and it leads to many problems. Contentment is the key. I love this. There is great... Paul says... There's gain to be had. There's gain to be had with godliness, but not the kind of gain that you're thinking of in verse 6. There is gain in godliness with contentment. And then he calls us back to our birthday. And tomorrow is my birthday, so I thought this was appropriate. We brought nothing into the world. What does that mean? We were naked. We had no wallet. We had no license. Right? Someone had to give us a name. They had to give us a number in most cases. And there you go. And we're on our way. But before that moment, we were, we were completely naked. And what's the saying? Uh, uh, how many hearses do you see with U-Hauls going behind them? 
We take nothing out of the world. All of the Egyptians' efforts to the contrary, we take nothing out of the world. If you put something in my coffin, I'm not going to be able to use it in the next life. You can put something in my coffin, but that will be for you. It won't be for me. We brought nothing into the world. We take nothing out of it. As, as a, a, a minister did a funeral for a wealthy lady, and he was asked, how much did she leave? He said, she left it all. She left it all. We can't take anything with us. In fact, that's part of what the narrow gate is all about. It's so narrow as to admit only the width of a soul. And I picture that as something thinner than a Kleenex. You can't bring anything else in there. Just you before Almighty God. Therefore, contentment is the key. We have to be content. As I thought about this, I thought about one of my favorite themes. This is a whole book to write someday, or a sermon anyway, and that's about boundary lines. Are you familiar with the concept? Boundaries. In the Old Testament, David again and again talks about the boundaries. And my favorite section is in Psalm 16. The boundary lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. As you look around the landscape of your life, can you say that with David? Can you agree with David that you have a pleasant set of boundaries? Uh, Cinda, I, was, I actually walked around and, and did some snooping around the church property about a month ago, and I drove into the neighborhoods. I was, I've never done it. I was curious. And Cinda sort of sketched for me the shape of this church property. It's an odd-shaped piece of property. And, and, and there's been discussion about how unfortunate that, that the lines of this property were drawn the way that they were. And I'm not going to comment on that either way except to say, in your, at your house, did the, did the property that your house is on, is that an odd-shaped lot? Did you get one of those narrow, long, skinny things that you think, what in the world can I do with that? Where you're in your dorm room, did, did, the door, did you have to take the top bunk or the bottom bunk? Did you get the smaller half of the piece of pie? You know what I'm talking about? The boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places. It's good enough for me, Lord. What you've given me is good enough for me. And then David adds, you have made my lot secure. No one's going to move the fences on the lot that God gives you. Those lines are fixed by the hand of your Heavenly Father. Contentment. Contentment. I wanted to throw in this illustration. Uh, there's a couple books on the market right now about happiness. Have any of you seen them? One of them is about how, you know, happiness and kind of the adult and how what makes us happy and how much money do we need to be happy. And they did all these research and statistics, and it turns out there's a number, and I, I'm terrible with remembering numbers, but anyway, there's a number that kind of, it's the perfect number, apparently, for, for happiness. It was calculated. Um, and I, I find that's, I mean, that, that's, it's always good, at least for table talk, right? I mean, when you can throw out numbers like this, apparently the number that, but for me, I, I know what number I need to be happy. Maybe you, know, you, maybe you have the same number as me. A little more. A little more. I always need just a little more. The other book on happiness that I thought was interesting is related to parenting and contentment. Apparently, parents who overly praise their kids actually create discontent in their children. 
that, they, that we need, and, and this is coming back to some old-fashioned Bible wisdom, we need some firm correction every now and then, don't we? Contentment. Contentment comes by recognizing that I can't have it all, I haven't been given it all, and that's okay. That's okay. So the other point that I was thinking about this morning is related to our motivation. A lot of the things I said, people could agree with, even if they don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. But I'm arguing, and this is the controversial point, I'm arguing that contentment is impossible apart from Jesus Christ. Because apart from Jesus Christ, no one has entered the universe from outside the universe to fix what is broken in the universe. We're left to find the solution in our own tool shed. And all of you know what it's like going out into the garage and looking for a tool that you can't find and having to run to the hardware store. And even the, the handsomest set of tools, there's always another tool that is lacking for a job. And that's what it's like in the world. We don't have enough tools to fix our problem. And the gospel gives a solution, which is that God himself, from outside of time, from outside of his space, even outside of eternity, comes and enters into our world. He brings the hardware store to us. In Christ, we have everything we need for life and for godliness and for contentment. It doesn't mean, friends, it doesn't mean that we're never discontent again, but it means that whenever discontent rises in our hearts, we know that God, through Jesus, is able to save us from the misery and the depression and the angst and the worry that discontent brings. The gospel says that we don't have everything that we want, We'll never get all the riches that we need, no matter how hard we try, and Jesus has come to give us those riches. I started out this morning by saying that my most important point is this. God wants you to be satisfied. He wants you to be satisfied with what he chooses or does not choose to give you. Friends, this is the most difficult thing in the world. This is an hourly struggle, a moment-by-moment struggle for every human being if he or she would just stop and admit it. Being content. So this sermon, in the end, isn't so much about money as it is about our hearts. And money is just a great way, a great mirror to expose where our hearts are. I want to end with the couple minutes that I have left with some bullet-style applications. If you're a note-taker, here are ten. Very brief, very short. I'm not going to elaborate on them, but I will speak them and uh, challenge you with some of these applications. I'll try to resist preaching all of these, okay? The first application is, and it just flows from what I've been saying, stewardship is the key. Stewardship. When it comes to thinking about money, the key is stewardship, that word stewardship. By that I mean we are stewards We are renters of stuff and things, time, talents, and treasure that God has given us. Thinking about our possessions in terms of stewardship is the key. Number two, along these lines, the reason God has given you money is so that you can be a blessing to others. That's it. To take care of the things that you need, and it's okay, I believe, for different people to have different amount of things, But having taken care in in what I believe to be a modest way, and, and that's for you to decide as a Christian, having taken care of your needs, the reason you have money is to bless other people. 
to be a blessing. Three, I've already mentioned this, there's nothing wrong with inequality for some having more than others. What's wrong, and this is my third point, is when pride creeps in. When, when people who have money think the reason they have money is because they're good. Because they worked harder. And the reason that so-and-so doesn't have money is because he or she is bad. That's the problem with money. It's when we begin to tweak with the image of God that is implanted in every human being. The problem with money is pride. And here's, a, here's, a, here's one that's, that's important. The biggest prejudice in America today is not racial, but economic. You can get people to worship together, for example, who have different skin colors. It's much harder to get people to worship together who come from different socioeconomic backgrounds. It's socioeconomic prejudice, which is what we think is impossible. And you think, if you haven't thought about that, think about that. Number four. The gospel brings about certain kinds of obedience in the world. One of them is obedience to serving the poor. The gospel brings about certain kinds of obedience in the world. One of those pieces of obedience is ministry to serving the poor. Another one, by the way, is working hard. That doesn't get you to heaven. There's no confusion about this in the Bible. But it is an, an obedience that flows from a changed life of the gospel. Number five, debt. Debt is not always wrong. But for many people, debt hinders their ability to serve with their money the way God is intended. And I'll give you a specific example. I'm fundraising. I'm raising money for a new church community which will hopefully reach people that don't know Jesus without a church background or people who don't go to church with the message of Christ. I called a friend of mine and I asked him if he would be interested in participating with me in the ministry. He said, I'd love to, but I can't. I have credit card debt that I've maxed out and I have a responsibility to get that taken care of. Well, I applaud him for that. Some people wouldn't even go that far. But nevertheless, how sad. How sad that he finds himself in a situation where there's a cause that he believes in, and he does believe in the cause that I'm a part of, but he can't help because he doesn't have the money. It's tied up in debt on purchases that he probably shouldn't have made. So debt, it's a cruel master. Six, I believe tithing is biblical. It's a gospel responsibility. It means giving a tenth, giving the first fruits to the work of your church community. I had a friend of mine who said, maybe I mentioned this, that a radio station had, had fed him spiritually more than his church, and so his tithe was going to the radio station. I think it's great to support a Christian radio station after you send the tithe to the local church. That's my view. I'm holding that as a secondary issue. There may be people that disagree with me on that, and, and uh, you'll find out that you're wrong soon enough. <laughs> That's a joke. But yes, I believe the tithe is biblical. I don't believe legalism is biblical, but I believe the tithe is. 
seven, money problems are always emotional problems first. Think about the fights about money that you may have had in your relationships, whether it's with parents or with a spouse. Money fights are always based on an emotional issue at the heart. And that's contentment. Eight, many Christian ministries, and I include this church in that, is hindered because of lack of funds. This church is hindered in what it can do because of lack of funds. That tells me, as I've just said in number seven, that behind our lack of funds are emotional issues, relational problems. And it's true. So God wants us not just to give more to the budget, but to get along so that money will flow. And inevitably what you see in churches is that when they stop fighting, the ministry starts thriving. Nine. Money is a big responsibility. We spend most of our time trying to get it, and then when we get it, a lot of us despise the things that we did to get it. So let's be careful. In working hard, workaholism is a real problem for some of us, working so hard to provide that we forget of what our loved ones need the most. And 10, I think some of us should consider a self-conscious, intentional, proactive, downgrade in lifestyle, in spending, in possessions, for the sake of being obedient to this text of Scripture. I don't know who you are, but I know if we're Americans, and because of the slice of America that is represented, I know that some of us would do well to think about that. Spending less and being more content. Spend less and be more content. Reevaluate your priorities, your financial priorities, it has a lot to do with how you're doing in the Lord. It does. I happen to not know what anyone gives at this church. So I'm saying this based on my own experience and based on my experience with other people. Some of us need to think about that. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for this series of messages about being missionary-minded Christians. Thank you for these challenging applications here at the end of the series. We're hopeful that, that you will perfect what is lacking in my presentation, in my communication, and in my thinking, and that your people will be challenged and inspired, encouraged to live for you amidst a very prosperous society, despite the fact that we're in a recession, amidst enormous wealth, unprecedented wealth in the history of the world. Lord, that we would be challenged to live for you. Make us content. Show us Jesus again. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.